Welcome to Behind the Product, a podcast by SEP, where we believe it takes more than a great idea to make a great product. We've been around for over 30 years, building software that matters more. And we've set out to explore the people, practices, and philosophies to try and capture what's behind great software products. So join us on this journey of conversation with the folks that bring ideas to life. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Zach Darnell. My co-host today is Chris Schinkel. You've probably heard him on previous episodes or at an SEP Talks event. And Chris and I got the opportunity to talk to our guest today, which is Brendan Wafko. He is the CTO of Ramsey Solutions. And Ramsey builds a lot of software. Brendan has been in the industry for over 25 years and just about every role you can think of around product development and just brings a wealth of experience and advice. So I really think that you get some practical tips in this episode. So without further ado, let's dive in. Thank you so much for listening. So Brendan... You and I had the pleasure of sitting down a few weeks ago, and I got to know a little bit about you and a little bit about Ramsey Solutions. I got to be honest, when I walked into the building, this lovely front desk person uh, came and asked me if I was there for the show. I was very surprised. There was an actual live show going on, and a live studio audience is the best way that I could describe that. And apparently that happens five days a week at Ramsey Solutions. It does. uh, Roughly speaking. Okay. I just loved learning about the history of the company and the explosiveness of all of the products that you guys have built. I mean, your organization is what, 400 people strong-ish within Ramsey Solutions? Mine or the whole company? No, yeah. whole company is what, 1,100? Yeah, it's 1,100. Mine team uh, is roughly about 250, 300 people. Yeah. 250, That's a big wow. product organization within a company that I would not have said was a tech company walking into the building that day. Yeah. That's awesome. And I love the kind of the model around personalities. You know, Dave Ramsey obviously was the first one. You've got Ken Coleman, Rachel Cruz, and a handful of others and starting to generate shows and content and then digital products. You guys have, what, a dozen or more digital products, distinct things that spawn out of the kind of two main buckets, which is what financial planning and uh, financial literacy, and then also leadership development and kind of entree leadership side of things? Yeah. Personal finance and leadership and leadership development are the two things that we're best traditionally known for. But in the last couple of years, we've started to branch out even uh, broader than that into career development and uh, also mental health. And we'll continue to expand more and more into into more uh, topics that are relevant to the way that people live. What I'm curious to talk about is, again, from the outside in, I don't know that I would have thought of Ramsey Solutions as a tech company, but it, it seems very apparent that you are, at least to some degree. And there's a ton of product suites that are all really well aligned. And I feel like that's a, such a hard thing to pull off. I'm Chris, in our business, we consult and work with companies that are you know, maybe... 100 people all the way out to huge Fortune 100 size enterprises. And I think across the entire spectrum, it's hard to pull off value stream alignment in an organization, no matter your size. And it seems like you guys are pulling that off pretty well. I'm kind of curious to explore a little bit of that secret sauce. When you're trying to figure out what you want to do in the marketplace, who you want your business to be in the marketplace, there's probably a couple different ways you can think about it. 
you've got like that big enterprise approach. The big enterprise approach looks at it from the perspective of how do I diversify my streams of income so that I can kind of be a an all seasons company, you know, no matter what difficult season you might find yourself in winter, fall, summer, spring, that you can be financially viable and financially successful, right? So kind of that, that all seasons strategy of uh, financial diversification. And then there's what I'd call like a customer led product strategy. And I think that's the bucket that we fall in with Ramsey. So for us, like to joke and say, like, we have the only CEO on the planet who spends three hours a day talking to his customers. And Dave does. Dave spends three hours a day talking to his customers through terrestrial radio and podcasts. And that's really the foundation of who we are as a company. And so when you spend that much time talking to customers and, you know, as our product managers spend that amount of time talking to customers, what kind of is a, is a natural byproduct of that is solving adjacent problems. So, you know, if you're, if you're getting phone calls from, you know, single moms that are in financial trouble or families that have encountered illness and sickness and they're, they're under financial stress or people that just got radically irresponsible with their Kentucky Fried Chicken credit card and have rung up $60,000 of debt, you know, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. When you're in financial strain, you need help. And so, you know, for years, Dave has, you know, reached out to those folks, met them where they are and offered them advice. But as you continue to do that over a period of time, you start to see these adjacent problems. One of the big ones is uh, financial trouble in America is now generational. It's not a single generation problem. People are handing their bad financial habits down to their kids. And so you got to ask yourself the question, like, how do we get upstream of that problem? You know, so we took a lot of our adult financial principles and started formatting them into things for primary schools and middle schools and, and college students, homeschool students. You know, so you find those a customer driven product strategy, I think, is most characterized by the effect that you're solving adjacent problems. That's really cool. You know, actually, we were talking to a customer here recently, and you shared kind of these three pillars of business strategy, your markets so or who you're serving, your, I forget what it was called, but how you serve them and what you serve them with. And when you change one of them, that's adjacent innovation. And when you change two of them, that's disruptive innovation. Sounds like very much so that adjacent innovation is critical for the way that you guys have grown in the financial side of things. I'm kind of curious what was the first digital product that you guys built? Well, there's the first one we like to talk about and the others. <laughs> all right, fair enough. We'll start with the first one you like to talk about. How's that? Uh, no, I mean, we can talk about all of them. It doesn't matter. It's just a joke. But, you know, Ramsey got its roots as a terrestrial radio publishing and live event company. That's where we cut our teeth, where we got our first kind of product market fit, if you will. And, you know, the digital stuff came later. So a lot of our initial kind of forays onto the internet, you know, they were customer informed, but I wouldn't really call them customer driven. You know, they were things like forums that you could pay for or really simple kind of rudimentary, you know, calculators, you know, whether they be, um, you know, financial calculators and things like that. But at some point we kind of looked at things and said, no, 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 we don't see all of this digital stuff as running sidecar to you know, our more traditional media approach to things, we started to look at software on the web as a mainline future opportunity for growth of the company. And so when we kind of crossed over that threshold was the first like true blue digital product that we created called Every Dollar, 
which is a personal finance budgeting product, help you give every dollar a name. You know, that's how we came up with that, that the idea that great, a great budgeting practice means that before the month starts, uh, that you've given every dollar a name, that you have a plan and you know how you're going to execute your financial month, right? So that's where the concept of every dollar came from. That was the first kind of full-scale digital product that we brought to the world. And it's an exciting thing. I mean, I think um, just recently, I think we celebrated like our eighth anniversary since launching that product. And I've stopped tracking it now, but we're easily in excess of 10 million people that have you know used that product. That's awesome. So Brendan, we're with a lot of clients that didn't start out by building and delivering digital products, similar, it sounds like, to, to Ramsey Solutions. And then they wake up and sort of find themselves where they have more digital products than, than they knew they had, or they didn't recognize they were a digital company, and now they are. And I would say a lot of those organizations you know, that are easily 20, 30, 40, 50 years old are still struggling a little bit to bring in some of the just, I'll say, ideas or structure around how to build a product organization. They've built physical products for many years, and they were aligned organization to do that. Now they're building digital products, and they had to build a part of insert inside of that. They had to build a digital product organization and all the product management and the thinking and stuff that comes along with that and product managers and Clearly, you guys have done that. Curious what advice you might give to someone in that situation. How do you grow into a product organization you know, that's aligned and functioning well and product managers talking to customers? What advice or whatever, what would you say there are things you've learned that are key? Uh, I'm sure like you guys, you hear that phrase, digital transformation that gets tossed around in the industry a lot. You'll hear digital transformation, agile transformation, all, you know, transformation, transformation, transformation. It's funny, when you walk around the hallways here at Ramsey, you will never hear that word. And it's because I've like unofficially banned it. (laughs) (laughs) I never gave it a chance to get traction. Listen, you think about transformation. Transformation is not a comfortable thing. It means that, you know, hey, I showed up to work on a Friday and we did things one way. And now on Monday, there's a different set of rules and I'm unfamiliar with it. You know, and when you do that to people, it's subtle. You threaten their identities. You threaten their professional identities. And the moment that you threaten somebody's professional identity, you're going to get resistance. I've never been interested in having a digital transformation here at Ramsey. What I've been interested in is just serving our customers well. And so in terms of advice to companies that are struggling or considering even running down this road, there is one non-negotiable bit of advice that honestly, I think that most companies ignore when they start running down this road, most executives, people at the very top of the organization, just assume that it's something that's going to get sorted out downstream. And that is an incredibly bad assumption. But look, there is no such thing as creating a digital transformation or just a focus on creating digital products. Like in, in order for your organization to have a transformation, you as an executive need to have a personal transformation. Like those two things are, you know, connected to each other. Your organization will not have a digital transformation unless you personally have a personal transformation. The amount of learning that you need to do, the amount of reevaluating how you think about things, how you solve problems is radically different You know, in the brick and mortar business place versus the digital landscape. It's completely different. How you set goals, how you organize teams, how you set expectations and hold people accountable you know, all of those things are radically different in the digital landscape. And if a leadership team does not do a good job of acknowledging that reality, 
the likelihood is they'll end up on an unending treadmill of frustration and just blame their teams for it the entire time. Like the change has to happen at the top. Interesting. That's really good. Yeah. I, I love the sentiment too. I'll throw in and I'll say what's funny about that is in the in the agile movement, which you know, Chris and I have been very involved with over the years. We were talking before the show started here about some, you know, we, we met each other years ago. The origins of the agile movement was bottom up. And there's a reason for that. The origin of the agile movement being bottom up was the fact that it was actually leadership and management that were in the way of listening to customers and shipping quickly. Like you had that rigid middle inside most companies that was preventing meaningful change and meaningful innovation. And so the agile movement in a lot of ways kind of sought to displace leaders. It was a method of like coaching teams to do work differently without having to go through the bureaucracy of getting leadership bought in. And that was great in the early 2000s, in the late 90s and the early 2000s. But today, it's a different story. You cannot go through meaningful organizational change without top to bottom alignment. So one of the things that I think experience, Brendan, like you said, we, we met a while ago, and I, I know you were involved with in some of the lean and Kanban community, as well as Agile and, and whatnot. In the day and age where I feel like design and design thinking is like growing and right product-led organizations and this whole product movement is thinking, it feels like, at least at the portfolio level or the higher level product level in the organization, there still is an absence of understanding of flow and lean and some of those sort of concepts that to me feel like are still inhibiting the growth of of organizations and some of that understanding. I'm just curious, I guess, what your perspective is there. Do you see that as well? What of that thinking have you brought into Ramsey Solutions and what's been, you know, paid big dividends there? No matter how I answer what you just asked, uh, it's guaranteed that I'm going to tick off 50% of anybody who has any interest (laughs) in this topic whatsoever. That's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Thus is the internet. So, I actually have some relatively polarizing views on this, and hopefully this doesn't uh, act in too much contrast to what you guys believe. But one of the things that I think is like, it's essentially flawed in Agile today is this buy-in and belief that you need scaled Agile frameworks. And I don't mean just to you know pick on the scaled Agile framework. I'm talking about less and disciplined Agile delivery and you know, safe and all the major kind of frameworks for doing enterprise scale software development or product development. There is a reason I don't like it. And it's not for the reason why people might think. If you just think about it for a second and you are managing the development of product at the product project program portfolio levels, you know, depending on which mode of safe you're doing, there's three layers, there's four levels, there's whatever, you know, you're installing your own bureaucracy. My belief as a leader is that my primary job is to reduce complexity, not add it. And so anytime that I see situations where people are trying to like stack these complicated bureaucratic systems of decision making, all you're really doing is installing delay of uninformed decisions. So listen, I'm a chief technology officer. Now, I'm not a chief technology officer at a company with like 30,000 people. I'm a chief technology officer at a company with 1,000. But let me tell you, if I wanted to wire this place up and down with bureaucratic process, I, I could find a way. <laughs> As a chief technology officer, I happen to love the idea of talking with customers and building things that you know are genuinely valuable to customers. But I've also got to recognize that I'm running a relatively large ship 
And I'm not on the phone with customers all the time. If I've learned any one thing from doing product development for 25 years, it's that uh, usually I'm wrong. And I've learned that. Unfortunately, a lot of my peers in jobs similar to mine haven't figured that out yet. And a lot of these scaled systems make the assumption that people at the top of the organization have all the right instincts, know the customers perfectly, and all of their ideas are coded in gold. And that's just not true. So if you create a complicated bureaucratic structure, you're basically not only making things take longer to execute, you're probably executing on the worst ideas. And so my, my goal always has been create the most elegant, simple system, just one. Not four layers of systems, not three layers of system, just one. One simple system. And if I do a good enough job at designing that system, one of its natural properties is that it can scale big. And so I believe in individual team empowerment. I don't do that blindly, like a team needs to earn empowerment, but I believe in the empowerment of a team. I believe in the empowerment of a product manager. I believe in you know mapping customer problems and solving things that are both valuable to the customer and viable for our business. We have tried to create an environment here at Ramsey that is very much optimized to the front lines. Product teams can act in an empowered way. I will mention one thing though, there's kind of a cancer coming back into our community that hasn't been around for about 20 years. I keep on hearing this word pop up and it makes me crazy. I'm hearing the word autonomy come back a lot in product teams. What a lot of people don't realize is 25 years ago, we figured out that was a terrible idea. The last thing that you want is an autonomous product development team because that implies that they can make all of their decisions on an island and that they're completely self-regulating and self-guiding. That's not what you want at all. You want a close partnership between that empowered team and the executives inside your organization. You don't want an autonomous team. What you want is a self-organizing team. It's like the pendulum swings. On one side, we have all these scaled frameworks that create like this drastic, radical, terrible bureaucracy that people hate to work in and it kills fulfillment. And then on the other side, teams want a level of autonomy that they actually haven't earned. They basically want to wander around like they're on a hippie farm. And that's not how things work either. So I think that the center mass of that is empowered teams and empowerment that a team will earn. A lot of our customers are, you know, have physical products and in, in, there's a digital component to it. And a lot of times they're fairly complex. It's a medical device. It's an, it's an aircraft. It's a large combine or tractor, right? Like these are big, complex uh, machines. I'm wondering what you might say or advice you might have for those organizations. And again, I, in terms of what you said earlier, all the frameworks and stuff, 100% on board with you there. I think they add a level of bureaucracy, right? And they assume that everybody at the top has the right answers and we're pushing it down. So so no disagreement there at all. But I'm wondering, sometimes I feel like advice that can come out of Silicon Valley is this very like small empowered product teams. But when you're working on a, an airplane, you have electrical engineering mechanic, like there are very different disciplines. It's hard to put all those people on a team and just say like, go work, right? So just, I don't know what advice you would have for someone not in a all digital product, or would that change at all the advice you would have in terms of organizing or empowering? I have to be careful a lot of times because my opinions extend well beyond what my actual experience is. The difference between me and most people is I admit it. <laughs> so you know what I've never done? I've never built an airplane. <laughs> I've basically had two jobs in my life. I worked at a bookstore when I was in high school. And I was lucky to catch the uh, early wave in 1996 of the explosion of the World Wide Web. And I have done what I'm doing today in one way or another for the last 25 years. 
So I don't pretend to be experts in other people's space. I have to exercise that level of uh, discipline here as well. We produce radio shows and, and television shows and live events, and we publish books here. We do all kinds of things that I have never personally done, and so I've got to be careful not to you know, allow my ego or my hubris to start making recommendations to things I haven't personally experienced. But here's what I can say based on my experience. If you're manufacturing airplanes, you know what you're probably also doing? You're probably building websites and digital products. You're building software for those airplanes. There are things inside the known domain of software development, whether that's on the internet for the purposes of marketing or whether it's you know core support systems for the product that you're building or just internal systems that you're using for support or other things. And I see this a lot. I appreciate hanging with you guys because I feel like this is a little therapy for me. I'm, I'm venting some things. <laughs> but you know, one thing that I see in our industry today that I think is really sick and twisted is what is happening is that you'll have like the domain of, say, software development. And there are known things that work and known things that don't work in that world. But there are some people that are resistant from learning from the past and feel like they need to reinvent the wheel at every turn. And what I encounter a lot of times is, you know, whether it's in my former life here before Ramsey, is that you'll bump into a team uh, that you'll say like, okay, well, here are some proven patterns. We'd love to experiment with these things. We'd love to see if they work. And you get a person or a group of people that are just like, yeah, that's not going to work for us. And simply just by saying that, somehow we let them just abdicate all responsibility in doing things in an organized and responsible way. It blows my mind. I see it all the time. So it's really easy for, and I promise I'm coming back to the point here, Chris, is when you're working at a company that does things that aren't just software, a lot of times you'll encounter people that are be like, yeah, you know, I know we're making software, but we're, you know, we're making it for airplanes. And, you know, that just doesn't work for us. Now, I have the good fortune of being an executive leader. I can challenge people in a way that I couldn't challenge them when I was a scrum master in 2002, you know? And, you know, I'm able to say to people now, uh, hey, you know, just because it doesn't make complete sense to you doesn't abdicate your responsibility to learn it. If you don't want to do it, if you don't want to use Agile, you don't want to use Lean, you don't want to, you know, or any of the frameworks, Scrum or Kanban or anything else. Listen, if you don't want to do those things, those are fine with me. But it's incumbent upon you to actually show me how you're going to do it in a sensible and well-articulated way. And if you can't do that, you're doing it my way. Now, I know that a lot of my Agile friends probably cringe on the inside when I say things like that, but <laughs> that is the one advantage that you have being in an executive position is that you can create accountability at a different level than you can when you're a Scrum Master. and so. For maybe some of those clients that you have or a lot of those companies out there that are trying to figure out, like, how do we do both the software development for our airplanes and build our airplanes? Well, you know, there may be some solution under the sun where you have one framework that fits all of that. But like, hey, listen, start with what you know, you know, start with where you are now. If you're building software for an airplane, you know, maybe don't try to reinvent that wheel. Just uh, benefit from the millions of collective hours of expertise that have been logged on that particular topic. Here's what I'm getting down to. There's a famous Pablo Picasso quote that says, you've got to learn the rules like a pro before you can make them like an artist or something like, I kind of butchered the quote. 
But the idea is that so many people out there nowadays, they want to immediately go to just being an artist. And that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So I'm going to make all kinds of people mad. (laughs) Unless you can quote to me books by people that came before you that talk about the known ways to do things, you have no right. You have not earned the right. Unless you can explain to me the steps that your kind of forefathers in your industry took to do things, you have no right to perform as an artist. You haven't earned the right. You know, I can show you a shelf full of books back there. Half of them I disagree with and half of them I can teach them too. (laughs) I've earned the right to experiment as an artist. So that question just comes from customers who sometimes on things are struggling, right? They're reading, they're trying to learn, they're they're absorbing information. And what they read is like, oh, we'll just go create a small part, you know, this empowered team or this, they're probably thinking more autonomy, not truly empowerment like you're talking about. So if you're referring to Marty Kagan's book, Empowered, awesome book, but never read Empowered without also reading Teresa Torres's Continuous Discovery Habits. Yeah. Yeah. Great advice. 100% agree. Kagan is a brilliant strategist, but you also need the advice of a tactician. And Teresa Torres is that tactician. Well said. Very well said. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of our customers, they're like, man, what am I, what am I supposed to do? I, I just can't define things like two weeks out. I mean, we work with a large automotive manufacturer who's trying to secure parts, you know, two years in advance processors for trucks. And it's like, I kind of need to know what the platform is before. I can't just work in these sort of myopic two-week sprints and just release something to the customer and see what it wants or building a medical device like Chris was supposed to do. I can't. And sometimes they may go to a class by someone like Marty Kagan or him exactly. (laughs) And I think sometimes the disciplines they're working in, the domains they're working in are somewhat trivialized by people who are only building digital SaaS products. Now, to your credit, some of our customers also can discount things that we have to say, no, hang on a second. It doesn't matter what we're producing. Like there's some known truths in this domain of software that we understand to be true. And we, you know, we talk about those, but I don't know. I feel like we've got to a point. I mean, uh, I went to the Agile conference with Zach last year for the first time. And I, and I just felt like overwhelmingly some of the information that was being shared. I said, man, if half of our clients operated their businesses like this, they wouldn't be in business, you know, very long. It is interesting because somehow... In the last 20 years, the word agile has started to mean we don't have a plan. I mean, rewind the clock back to when all of this started. That was not the goal. Here's how I explain it to people. There are two kinds of plans. There's an iterative plan and there's a deterministic plan. And a deterministic plan identifies exactly what you got to do in exactly what timing with exactly what people and exactly what kind of money. Everything has been determined in advance. And in a deterministic plan, value is not created until the plan is meaningfully delivered, right? You might have like four phases or something like that, or one huge phase, but you're really not getting value very often. Now, you think about iteration. There are too many situations today where I meet product teams and I'll meet a visual designer and their visual designer is really frustrated over the idea of iteration or they'll use uh, Henrik Nyberg's drawing from years ago of like going from a skateboard to an airplane. And I'll hear a visual designer say, I'm just tired of building skateboards all the time, right? Because iteration has given people a license to build crap and then just move on to the next idea. And that is not what iteration was intended to do. Here's how I define an iterative plan. An iterative plan is a plan that creates value, even if only partially executed. So In an iterative plan, you should be able to stop executing the plan at any point in time 
and still have value on the table. But just because you're iterating doesn't mean that you haven't defined a future state, like a, a gold standard future state. I think that's actually one of the big problems. You know, so when you're talking to customers that are like, well, you know, I can't just randomly spin up a software development team, hold my breath and hope that in two week iterations, you know, over the next 18 months that I'm going to get what I want. Just because we've decided to do agile doesn't mean that we don't have a plan in mind. It's just how we plan, you know, and so I have to press on leaders all the time. You know, I've got a 50 plus leaders that report to me here at Ramsey. And a lot of times I feel like I'm giving them anti-agile advice when it's not. It just feels that way sometimes because they're like, well, let's just go for it. And I'm like, well, hold on. What are you trying to accomplish? And they're like, what do you mean? What am I trying to accomplish? Let's just dive in and start. And I'm like, oh, hold on. You're misapplying the principles here. You still need to know where you're going. You know, deterministic planning makes people feel really confident, increases their level of certainty. It increases people's level of security, uh, but it's a false security. Because there is no such thing as a deterministic plan that actually, you know, if somebody came to me and said like, hey, Brendan, I had this, you know, 100 page thick plan and you'd be so proud of me. You know, I finished it on time, on scope and on budget. Uh, You know, they would expect that I'd be like, hey, way to go. Awesome job. And the truth is, is that the only thing that tells me about that person is they didn't learn anything along the way. Plans need to adapt. So people that go hard left into deterministic planning because they don't understand iterative planning. If you don't understand how to do either one of those well, you're going to end up in a lot of trouble. Like Just because you don't understand iterative planning doesn't mean that deterministic planning is going to produce the results that you want. There's a balance between the two. Yeah. So selfishly, in a couple of weeks, I'm giving a talk here to some clients around product roadmapping, which is, uh, depending on who you ask, probably you get a wide variety of responses. So I'm just, I'm curious, collecting, doing my own own research, like what do you do internally from a a roadmapping perspective? What's your perspective on it? Do they have a purpose? What's that purpose? And, you know, you know, from outcome-based to feature-based or deterministic or not, what, I don't know, just what's your advice or what's your two cents thing I can steal and credit you in my presentation for? Well, here, <laughs> tell you what, I'll steal from somebody else and you can just credit her <laughs> instead of crediting me. So a lot of my talking points on this topic come from Teresa Torres. Continuous Discovery Habits is probably one of the best books written in the last 10 years when it comes to a product. Because what it really does is it takes a really wide pool of strategies and narrows the band down to just a handful of small strategies that if you can master, you're very likely to produce the kind of results that you want. And one of the things that Teresa advocates for really heavily is called OSTs, Opportunity Solution Trees. And the idea is that it gives you a predefined format that you can use in understanding what your opportunities are. Well, you know, it's opportunities and solutions. What are the opportunities that our customers are telling us about? What are the opportunities that we see internally inside of our business? And we articulate those things in the customer voice, and it really guides our process for you know, assumption testing, value testing, however you want to articulate it. So for us, we don't subscribe or we don't do a lot of traditional product road mapping in terms of kind of laying out a timeline that says, you know, hey, here's a big problem domain that we want to solve. And we've kind of hatcheted it down to different pieces that we'll execute over the course of a year. We don't so much do that. What we tend to do is we maintain a map And our executive teams will look at these maps of different like high level customer problems. And we'll ask ourselves, you know, quarter by quarter or every year, 
look at it and say, like, where do we believe that the most value can be derived from a particular customer problem and kind of drive down that channel? I would consider it, you know, it's Teresa's invention, it's not mine, but I have found that to be a far superior method of product roadmapping than maybe the traditional sense. But I will say it requires a lot of changing in thinking and behavior change. That is not an easy switch to make for most executives. It's pretty difficult. We've been reasonably successful with it here, but it's because we're kind of fostering that idea that in order to have a company-wide transformation, we have to have individual transformation. So when you have a, a group of people that's pretty bought in on that idea, it makes complicated change a lot easier. The tool we've used quite a bit with customers. Yeah. Curious, you know, you talk about challenges. What are some of those challenges or what are some of those you've faced? In terms of using an opportunity solution tree as a roadmap? Yeah, or just the opportunity yeah, solution tree. That shift in thinking, like maybe yeah. expound a little more on that. What, what are some of those things? I think that would be interesting. Yeah. Probably the first thing you'll see, like a well, well-articulated opportunity solution tree is going to have a lot less of your words and a whole lot more of the customer's words. And usually the first mistake that I see is that you know, somebody will look at the format or they'll look at an example. And what they'll do is they'll just make up things that sound like it's the customer, but it's really just their opinion. After you use them for a while, you actually get pretty good at spotting it. I'll ask people, I'll be like, oh, cool. Hey, can you talk me through the customer call that helped reveal, you know, that particular issue? And they look at me like, what do you mean? I'm like, what? I just assumed that when you use a customer's voice, it means you actually talk to a customer, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> And of course, you know, listen, it doesn't literally have to be a direct quote from a customer. Sometimes you talk to 10, 20 customers, uh, you hear similar things, you synthesize those opinions into some more, well, you synthesize, you know, and, and synthesizing is okay. But you should be able to draw back the things that you have in an opportunity solution tree with actual real examples of having talked to real, real human beings that use your product. That's the number one thing I typically see is people pretending to be customers when they're really just internal stakeholders. And the other thing that I generally see is, you know, when you work down an opportunity solution tree, the goal is that you get to assumption testing, right? Like you have some sort of solution, but you never want to just test one solution. What we teach around here is that you really want to test a minimum of three. And the reason that you do that is that so you don't fall in love with just an option. You actually experiment with a couple of different things and see what gets best traction with the customer. And uh, the second problem that I usually see is in the interest of haste and wanting to get something out the door, group of stakeholders will just look at two or three or four different potential solutions that we should experiment with and just decide which one we're going to roll with. That can be pretty problematic. The third thing I probably see with assumption testing is that people either overthink it or underthink it. I'll see a lot of times, in fact, I had a conversation earlier today where I was talking with a product manager and a group of designers, and they were saying, well, you know, by the time we're done doing product discovery or that we do assumption testing, we basically have a completed UI that we just hand off to the developers to build. And I'm like, whoa, 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 hold on. That is, in my opinion, I know Marty Kagan would actually disagree with me on this because I've talked to some folks on his team, but that's okay. We're allowed to have different opinions. You know, to me... The discovery practices are really there to verify that a customer is willing to pay for something ultimately. And I want to bring as little effort and as little fidelity to the table to either prove or disprove that. And if I'm trying to uh, do high fidelity graphic design in my discovery processes, then I'm going to slow down everything else. The way that I like to think about it is just like a bicycle, you kind of have a high gear and a low gear and your discovery gear should rotate about 10 times for every one time that, see if I can do this. I don't think I can do it. 
There you go. I'm actually kind of getting it. There it is. <laughs> that, you know, your discovery gear should rotate two, three, four. You get good at it 10 times for every one time that your delivery gear moves. And the more that you use product discovery as a mechanism to make things pixel perfect, it's not going to go fast. I guess then that would be the fourth problem is that people, uh, a lot of times teams, when they're going through OSTs, you know, OSTs down to actual assumption testing as part of your discovery process, that makers, the actual people building software, whether designers, developers, testers, they don't actually know how to moderate the fidelity at which they act. They'll try to make everything super high quality too early. So really quick, before we wrap up, one of the things that's been on my brain here as you've been talking One of the things that I see a lot with some of our customers, especially the ones that maybe are traditionally, you know, building atoms and are relatively new in bits and the folks that have been that are used to a certain language, lexicon, communication style, the way that they understand how things work, they tend to struggle, I think, sometimes communicating and understanding even an opportunity solution tree or what an iteration is or how product is moving forward. How have you seen bridging that gap? Because I mean, Ramsey's been around for what, 30 years? Yeah. And only really doing digital products, maybe about eight-ish or so? Yeah, about 10 years, probably. How has that transition been communication-wise with the folks that have been at Ramsey for a long time and the folks that are relatively new in the maker community there? Listen, I don't want to paint too bright of a picture, and I also don't want to paint too dim of a picture. Ramsey's an awesome company. You know, I sold a business to come work here full time. People don't do that. I did that because I fell in love with the place. It's got literally the best human beings I have ever worked around in my life. That's really cool. That being said, change is hard. And the moment that you have humans involved in any kind of change, it's hard. I don't care. I like to think that we kind of have first world problems around here. There's a lot of conflict when you work through this stuff. But I'm having conflict with people that I really both intellectually and emotionally respect. It's not easy and it hasn't been easy. I would never tell any human soul that Ramsey becoming a more digital company has been an easy process. It is hard no matter where you do it. I feel particularly fortunate because I actually respect the people that I'm arguing with. (laughs) And I'm pretty sure they respect me too. And so, yeah, it, you know, it's squishy. It's squishy. It's very squishy. Here's the thing. Oh, how do I say this? The problem is actually even a little broader scoped than you're scoping it. Because here's the truth. I go hire people that have five years of software engineering experience. It's like they've never had a system for writing software in their lives. You know, I interview people all the time. They don't know what test-driven development is. And I, we don't even do Scrum here. They don't know what Scrum is. They don't understand like simple ideas, like separations of concerns. Like the reality is, is that it's not just an age thing. It's not just an experience thing. There are people who are completely fresh to the marketplace that don't know the habits of what it means to be a digital company. By the way, go, you know, find some people that you know that work at Facebook and Google. They don't either. Those companies are so big now. Go talk to a software engineer that works at Apple and ask them how long it takes them to get a feature from concept out the door. Even the big fang companies, the big tech companies, aren't as good at this as a lot of people perceive. So, you know, there's a reason I'm sharing this. Like, yeah, digital transformation at Ramsey, although we don't call it that, has been hard. But it's not an issue of like, oh, well, you know, our operating board, which, by the way, I'm part of, but, you know, our operating board are a bunch of like gray hair folks that don't understand modern product development. 
No, that's not the problem that we have here at Ramsey. It is a general cultural awareness that applies almost equally with a 22-year-old as it does a 62-year-old. The environment that you really have to create is you've got to create an environment where people are curious and they're deeply committed to continuous improvement. And you know, I'm, I'm not much into creating clicks, but if we had clicks here at Ramsey, here's what I'd want. I'd want the cool kids to be the ones that are deeply invested in continuous improvement. And whatever we want to call that other group, those would be the people that aren't invested in continuous improvement. Like I need people that are deeply emotionally and intellectually capable of identifying humbly and vulnerably what their weak spots are and getting serious about how they need to grow, how they need to change, how they need to adapt. I'll take people like that 10 times out of 10 over other people. There's a good litmus test in all this, which is ask yourself, do I love the people I work with? And I know that sounds weird, but you know what? I do. I actually do. I've spent a lot of years with these people. I care about them, you know, in a healthy way. I love them, you know? When you love somebody, you know, there's that quote that says, you know, the, what is it? The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's apathy. Yeah, it's apathy. You know, for those of the, those folks that are like listening to this, ask yourself, do I love the people that I work with? Uh, and if the answer is no, go find another different job. Find people that you love working with. 45 years is too long to be surrounded by people you don't like, <laughs> you know? It's <laughs> <laughs> good. That's a good point. I love how we went from, from business to personal advice on the show. Yeah. Well, this was great. <laughs> Brendan, thank you so much for spending time with us, man. And I appreciate the visit. I Walking through the halls of Ramsey just for a few hours, I think that I could see some of what you're alluding to. Everybody was very much, best way I could describe it, on mission. And again, that was just hearing hallway conversations as I was walking through. So I think what you guys have created there is really cool and very special. So I appreciate you sharing some of that with us. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. I appreciate you you having me on. It was great talking with you guys. Thank you, sir. I hope you have a wonderful afternoon and uh, enjoy the Nashville weather. Will do. Talk to you soon. Thank you. 